Welcome to Take This Poem Podcast, where we explore the rich, wild things that good poems can do in the everyday lives of ordinary folks. I'm your host, Mary Guidis. Whether you're a longtime poetry lover like I am, or just barely interested, I invite you to take this poem. I hope it amends the soil of your life. Hello. Today I'm going to read to you a poem called The Pupil by Morris Manning. Time was, I was there, halted beside the drum stove. It glowed. There was a skillet set on its head. Biscuits were rising on the coal-black brim. I had a book and a full-grown woman beside me. You might not believe it, but I was teaching her to read. Her father was in the other room. He lay beneath a quilt to make us think he was asleep. I could see his boots still on his feet, pointing at the sooty ceiling. He didn't want his daughter to learn to read. There was a hole in the roof, and a cat climbed through it into the stiff heat. An ancient woman who never spoke and never noticed the cat, was strapped to a chair with a belt. I had forgotten the part about the cat and the belt and the painted eyes of the woman. Why was I until this moment afraid to remember her? What kept her out? Now, the daughter didn't call her father Daddy. Diddy, she said. Diddy, get up, we've got company. These biscuits coming, and besides, I'm a-fixin' to read. Why, even Granny wants to see, don't you, Granny? She tapped her fingers on the old woman's leather hand, then shook her head and turned to me. Dat Diddy's awful moody, she said, and laughed. I peeked into the shadow of his room. Her Diddy didn't flinch. He didn't draw a breath. His boots crowed like parentheses around a word that had no letters, a space where nothing held its place, a blank, for instance, a mute, as in. What else was there to do? That ditty wasn't any smarter than the handle of a broom, yet still he knew. He knew no book would help, no word would hold him back from sleeping off the life God gave him. Biscuits, a hole in the roof, a quilt to cover up his eyes, a daughter who couldn't read her name. Morris Manning was born and raised and still lives and teaches in Kentucky. This collection that I'm reading from is called Common Man, and the back of the book calls it a book-length poem, for all the poems are centered around this place that he grew up these stories he experienced personally and those he heard from grandparents and neighbors. I've listened to an interview or two with him, and he had a grandmother especially who was a key figure in sharing these old stories of the area he grew up with him. Um, But other than the topic all being this place, the cohesive feeling of this collection is partly from the fact that every poem in this book looks exactly the same. I wish I could give you a peek. Every poem has two lines grouped together into couplets with a space in between. 
and all the lines have about eight to ten syllables, so they look very even and poemy on the page. And yet, when I read it out loud, it probably sounded like it could be a prose paragraph or a story. It doesn't sound as poemy as it looks. But to me, this poem does something very different from what prose would do. Say, an article in National Geographic about Appalachian culture, or even if it was a memoir essay about growing up in this slowly disappearing way of life. I think it would be very different than it is as a poem. And I think the difference partly has to do with the suspension of judgment or really a suspension of any sort of thesis statement about the situation that we see in this poem. The speaker is in this setting. It's familiar to him. These are folks who live nearby, folks he's really knowing. And yet, even the fact that he's writing a poem about this scene which would so easily be seen as squalid and backwards to the type of people who buy and read poetry books. That shows, and he's a teacher, he's a professor, so he's obviously in some way also separate from this scene um, and seeing it from without through the poem. He sees and notices the hole in the roof, the illiterate woman, the father in bed fully dressed in the middle of the day, the old woman tied to her chair, And yet the piece doesn't for one moment move from art into the didactic or instructional. The poem doesn't make value judgments on the scene that it's showing us. But it isn't simply a verbal photograph either. Something just to look at. Like here, take a look at this scene and, you know, take a good stare. (laughs) It's not just something, a flat depiction And that's because there's a human mind here, speaker, an author, who has filtered every word and detail through his imagination, rather than a camera, and used language to bring it to our imagination. I love the part in this poem where the speaker jumps in and says, I'm paraphrasing, um, I'd forgotten about the cat and the woman. Why was I afraid to remember her before now? Or something like that. And I love that part because it lets us have a peek into this process of crafting the scene so that it can be brought to us. It makes explicit his own role in that part of making a poem. Um, I'm talking a long time about this, partly because these are two aspects of poetry in general that I'm most passionate about. First, poetry being free from utilitarian uses of language, like an essay would be, for example, or an article, and two, it being a place where the imagination of the poet and the imagination of the reader have to come together to make the art work. With poetry, it takes two to tango, and it's such a wild electric feeling to have my own brain catch what's been pitched to it by the poet. Um, As is often the case, someone has written about this more eloquently than I have. So I'm going to read a little section to you from Matthew Zapruder's book, Why Poetry? Zapruder is also a poet, but in my opinion, his greatest talent is in writing about poetry. No offense, Matt, Um, and anyone who wants to can disagree with me, but I have found a lot of... But let's just say this book has a lot of underlining in it. (laughs) Um, 
So this is in his afterword, which is called Poetry and Poets in a Time of Crisis. In it, he's really digging into, does poetry still have a point when it feels like the world is falling apart? So if you're interested in that, you might want to get this from the library and take a peek. But the section I'm going to read is about what I've been talking about with how language in poetry is doing something different than language in other places. He writes, Poets help us live our lives, not by telling us what to think or by comforting us. They do so by creating spaces where one individual imagination can activate another, and those imaginations can be together. Poems are imaginative structures built out of words, ones that any reader can enter. They are places of freedom, enlivenment, true communion. One could say, correctly, that this is true of any form of literature, or really any use of language. But because poetry remains free of all the other obligations that any other use of language inevitably must take on, it can be devoted purely to the creation of these spaces, where one imagination, in the company of another, can remember what it is to be alive and free. That's the end of the passage from his book. So I'm going to read the pupil one more time, and I hope you enjoy letting your imagination open this present sent to it from the imagination of Morris Manning. The pupil. Time was, I was there, halted beside the drum stove. It glowed. There was a skillet set on its head. Biscuits were rising on the coal-black brim. I had a book and a full-grown woman beside me. You might not believe it, but I was teaching her to read. Her father was in the other room. He lay beneath a quilt to make us think he was asleep. I could see his boots still on his feet, pointing at the sooty ceiling. He didn't want his daughter to learn to read. There was a hole in the roof, and a cat climbed through it into the stiff heat. An ancient woman, who never spoke and never noticed the cat, was strapped to a chair with a belt. I had forgotten the part about the cat and the belt and the painted eyes of the woman. Why was I, until this moment, afraid to remember her? What kept her out? Now the daughter didn't call her father Daddy. Diddy, she said. Diddy, get up, we've got company. These biscuits coming, and besides, I'm a-fixin' to read. Why, even Granny wants to see, don't you, Granny? She tapped her fingers on the old woman's leather hand, then shook her head and turned to me. Dat Diddy's awful moody, she said and laughed. I peeked into the shadow of his room. Her Diddy didn't flinch. He didn't draw a breath. His boots crowed like parentheses around a word that had no letters, a space where nothing held its place, a blank, for instance, a mute, as in. What else was there to do? That Diddy wasn't any smarter than the handle of a broom, yet still he knew. He knew no book would help, no word would hold him back from sleeping off the life God gave him. Biscuits, a hole in the roof a quilt to cover up his eyes, a daughter who couldn't read her name.
Part of my vision for Take This Poem was to have it be interactive. I imagined it as a virtual bonfire poetry reading, where friends, family, local poets, and you can come together to warm our hands on some poetry. So what would that look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. You could send me a voice recording of you reading a poem to be included in a mailbag poetry reading. Commenting on the poem is welcome, but optional. Don't be shy. It's the only voice you got. What better use for it do you have than reading beautiful words out loud? Also, you could request a poem that you'd like to hear me read and ponder on the show. Or tell me what you've been thinking about these days and I could play literary matchmaker and choose a poem for you. And by the way, I am aware that I have a small but loyal following of youngsters out there, and these invitations are all open to them as well. Send any of these or other ideas you have to takethispoempodcast at gmail.com and join me in sharing good poems with this little community. I hope to hear from you soon.